0: Prepare to travel back through time to the earliest days of rock and roll with another episode of Rock and Roll Flashback Podcasts with your host, Bill Price. Buddy Holly was one of the truly great pioneers of rock and roll who was instrumental in its early history. This is the story of Buddy Holly and the Crickets on Rock and Roll Flashback. Charles Hardin Holly was born in Lubbock, Texas, during the Great Depression on September 7, 1936. Beginning in his early childhood, he acquired the nickname Buddy. Since his family was musically inclined, he took piano lessons at the age of 11, but gave it up after nine months, switching instead to the guitar. Initially, Buddy's parents purchased a steel guitar However, what he really wanted was a guitar. His interest in guitar started when he heard a school classmate singing and playing a guitar on the school bus. But he received his first guitar that his parents purchased at a pawn shop. His brother, Travis, then taught him how to play. His early music influences were country music artists such as Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers, Bill Monroe and Hank Snow, as well as Gospel and Rhythm and Blues performers. His first performance was on television in 1952 with his partner, Jack Neal, as Buddy and Neal. After Neal left, Bob Montgomery became the replacement and were billed as Buddy and Bob. In 1953, they started performing on the Sunday party show on radio station KDAV. After seeing Elvis Presley perform in Lubbock, Holly made the decision to focus on a musical career. In 1955, he opened for Presley three times, prompting a shift in style from country and western music to rock and roll. By that time, the band's lineup consisted of Larry Walborn on stand-up bass and Jerry Allison on drums. Although Buddy's last name is spelled H-O-L-L-E-Y, he was known as Holly, spelled without the e. When Holly opened for Bill Haley and the Comets, he caught the attention of Eddie Crandall, who was an Asheville scout, and helped secure a contract with Decca Records. Owen Bradley, who is famous for his orchestrated country hits, produced Holly's Decca recording sessions. In April 1956, Decca released two singles: "Blue Days," "Black Nights." and Love Me on the B-side, also modern Don Juan and You Are My Desire as the B-side, which did not generate any significant sales. As a result, Decca decided not to renew Holly's contract with the stipulation that he could not record the same songs with other labels for five years. However, Buddy was not happy with Bradley's musical approach and his sole control of the sessions. Holly left Decca and went to producer Norman Petty's studio in Clovis, New Mexico, to record a demo of That'll Be the Day, a song that had been recorded at Decca. Petty then became their manager and sent the demo to Brunswick Records. Since it could not be released under the, the name used at Decca, Allison, the bass player, suggested The Crickets as their new name. Brunswick then signed Holly, giving him artistic control over the recording sessions. That'll be the day impressed the label's executives that they actually released the demo recording. Later it was learned that Brunswick was a subsidiary of Decca, which essentially made Decca's earlier restriction not applicable. Recordings under the name of the Crickets were released on Brunswick, and recordings under Holly's name, were released on the subsidiary label Choral Records. That'll Be the Day was released on May 27, 1957. Petty then booked the band for appearances in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and New York. They were also booked for seven performances at New York's Apollo Theater in August. Initially, the band did not impress the black audiences. However, they gained acceptance when they played Bo Diddley. By the conclusion of the Apollo appearance, that'll be the day was climbing the charts. On August 26th, Holly performed on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. In September 23rd, the record topped the U.S. Best Sellers in Stores chart, and stayed at number one on the U.K. Singles chart for three weeks in November. Coral Records released Peggy Sue with Every Day on the B-side. By October. Peggy Sue climbed to number three on Billboard's Pop Chart, number two on the R&B Chart, and number six on the UK Singles Chart. With the success of the song, the group was referred to as Buddy Holly and the Crickets. However, that name did not appear on the record labels until 1962. In October 1957, Brunswick released the second single, "Oh Boy," with "Not Fade Away" as the B-side. It made it to number 10 on the pop chart, 13 on the R&B chart. On December 1st, they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, performing That'll Be The Day and Peggy Sue. After the Sullivan Show appearance, guitarist Nicky Sullivan left the band. On January 8th, Holly and the Crickets were added to the America's Greatest Teenage Recording Stars Tour. On January 25th, 1958, Ray Vaughn was recorded And on the next day, Holly made his second appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show performing Oh Boy. Holly performed in Honolulu, Hawaii, before starting a week-long tour of Australia, which included Paul Anka and Jerry Lee Lewis. In March, they toured the UK, playing 50 shows in 25 days. After returning to the U.S., they joined Alan Freed's Big Beat Show Tour, Performing in 41 shows. In May, Holly hired guitarist Tommy Alsop for a recording session in Clovis, New Mexico. The session produced It's So Easy and Heartbeat. Impressed by Alsop's performance, Holly invited him to become a member of the Crickets. In June, Holly returned to New York for a solo recording session. He employed a jazz and R&B band to record Now We're One and Bobby Darin's Early in the Morning. During a visit to his music publisher, Pierre Southern, Buddy met Maria Elena Santiago. After meeting her, he asked her out, and on their very first date, he proposed marriage. The wedding took place on August 15, 1958. Norman Petty, who is Holly's manager, was against the marriage, believing it would upset the female fans. Petty's objection did not go over well with Holly, who had begun to question Petty's bookkeeping. The Crickets also became frustrated with Petty's control over the band's earnings. Maria began to accompany Holly on tours, posing as the Crickets' secretary. She collected the concert earnings and retained the money instead of the usual transfer to Petty. Maria and her aunt, who was a peer Southern executive in the Latin American Music Department, managed to convince Buddy that Petty was transferring the band's royalties from Coral Brunswick to his company's account. When Holly hired a lawyer to address the royalty issues, the situation became rather murky. New York promoter Manny Greenfield and Holly became embroiled in a dispute over royalties and earnings. As a result, all payments were frozen until the dispute was resolved. Holly later returned to Clovis, New Mexico to record Reminiscing and Come Back Baby. But he then produced Lubbock DJ Waylon Jennings' single, When Sin Stops. Back in New York... Holly's final recording session, which came to be known as the String Sessions, yielded four songs with the collaboration of the Dick Jacobs 18-piece ensemble. The three-and-a-half-hour session recorded True Love Ways, written by Holly, Moon Dreams, written by Norman Petty, Raining in My Heart, written by Felice and Boudlowe Bryant, and It Doesn't Matter Anymore, written by Paul Anka. Holly terminated his involvement with Petty in December 1958. However, the Crickets decided to keep Petty as their manager. The split between Holly and the Crickets was on friendly terms. But he had decided to stay in New York, while the Crickets wanted to stay in Texas. Since Petty was continuing to hold the royalties, this forced Holly to resume touring. In December 1958, Holly and Maria visited Wayland Jennings in Lubbock. Holly was scheduled to perform on the Winter Dance Party Tour, which was set to begin in January 1959 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. While in Lubbock, he put together a band consisting of Jennings on bass, Tommy Alsip on guitar, and Carl Bunch on drums. The winter dance party tour began on January 23rd. However, from the start, there were logistical issues caused by not considering the distance between venues. Other problems that made traveling unpleasant were the unheated tour buses that broke down twice in the freezing weather. Drummer Carl Bunch had to be hospitalized after suffering from frostbite, to his toes. Before the performance in Clear Lake, Iowa on February 2nd, Buddy charted a four-seat plane for Jennings, Alsup, and himself. Alsup agreed to flip a coin with Richie Valance to determine who would get the seat. Upon winning, Valance said, that's the first time I've won anything in my life. Jennings volunteered to give up his seat to the Big Bopper, who had influenza and found the tour bus too cold and uncomfortable. On February 3rd, just after 1 a.m., the plane took off on its way to the next show in Moorhead, Minnesota. The plane crashed into a cornfield five miles from Mason City, Iowa, killing all aboard. Holly was just 22 years old. Buddy's funeral was held five days later in Lubbock, officiated by Ben Johnson, who had conducted Holly's wedding just months earlier. Buddy Holly left several unfinished recordings, which were his six final songs. In June of 1959, Choral Records released the first posthumous Holly single, Peggy Sue Got Married, which included overdubs and backing vocals by the Ray Charles Singers. In 1986, Holly was included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's first induction class and also the Songwriters Hall of Fame. In 1980, a sculpted statue of Holly playing his Fender guitar was placed in Lubbock's Walk of Fame, which pays homage to those who made contributions to Lubbock's music history. A street was also named in his honor, and the Buddy Holly Center was established, which houses a museum of Holly memorabilia. The National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences gave Holly the Lifetime Achievement Award in 1997. Then in 2000, he was inducted into the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A star with his name was placed on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on the year he would have been 75 years old. Interestingly, John Lennon and Paul McCartney saw Holly perform on the Sunday night at the London Palladium television program. The inspiration for the name The Beatles was Holly's Crickets, which carried an insect connotation. They later cited Holly as one of their primary influences. In 1958, Lennon's first band, The Quarrymen, recorded a cover of That Will Be the Day. In 1964, The Beatles recorded a cover of Words of Love, which was on the Beatles' For Sale album. Eric Clapton also saw Holly perform on the Sunday night at the London Palladium television program, inspiring Eric to embrace a career in music. When Holly was on tour in England, Mick Jagger attended a live performance in Woolwich, London. Jagger recalled Holly's performance of Not Fade Away, which also inspired Keith Richards' guitar-playing technique. In 1964, the Rolling Stones scored a hit with their cover of Not Fade Away. On the last night of January 1959, a 17-year-old Bob Dylan attended Holly's performance in Duluth, Minnesota, just three nights before Buddy's death. In 1971, American Pie by Don McLean was inspired by Holly's death. The lyric, The Day the Music Died, became associated with the tragic event. A future teen idol by the name of Bobby V was given the unique opportunity of performing in Duluth, Minnesota, replacing Holly following the plane crash. Buddy's influence on V's singing technique, can be heard especially on Bobby's 1961 recording of Rubber Ball, where the Holly hiccup was employed as homage to Buddy Holly. In retrospect, Holly's brief career left an enduring legacy which influenced many rock and roll artists and bands of the 1960s. This has been a look back at Buddy Holly, one of the early influential artists of the 1950s. You have just journeyed back through time with Rock and Roll Flashback Podcasts with your host, Bill Price. And until next time, rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on.